G'day and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer from ABC's Radio National. Thanks for tuning in. Well, today, the year in review and the subjects, the big three issues of 2020. The three C's, if you like. Coronavirus, cancel culture and China. So let's get started. Well, to talk about 2020 and to identify political trends in the new year, let's turn to our panel. Jenny Hewitt, she's a columnist with the Australian Financial Review and a former Washington correspondent twice with the Sydney Morning Herald. Welcome back to Between the Lines, Jenny. Pleasure to be here. Keith Winshuttle is a former ABC director. He's editor of Quadrant magazine and author of a new book called The Persecution of George Pell. G'day, Keith. How are you? I'm just great, Tom. And Jacinta Price is a Walpuri Celtic woman. She's an Alice Springs Deputy Mayor and Director of Indigenous Affairs at the Centre for Independent Studies. That's a Sydney think tank that I head. Jacinta, great to have you back on Between the Lines. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, first, the coronavirus crisis. This is the public health advice. You must stay at home except for the following reasons. A, shopping for what you need. B, for medical care or compassionate needs. C, to exercise. And D, uh, for work and education if you cannot work or learn remotely. That was Prime Minister Scott Morrison there. Uh, Jenny Hewitt, uh, federal and state governments, uh, how do you rate their handling of the COVID crisis? Well, I think um, all governments, assuming they've been seen to handle it pretty well, have been very popular with their voters, but they've handled it in very, very different ways. And, uh, and of course, the most dramatic example of that is New South Wales and Victoria, where you had Gladys Berejiklian deciding that even if there were a small number of cases, she was going to keep the state open. And uh, Daniel Andrews, after Victoria had a completely disastrous fiasco with hotel quarantine and then inability to contact trace, locking down the state and keeping it locked down for many, many months. However, they'll all be kind of regarded quite well, I think. And then, of course, there's Scott Morrison, who has had to manage the very different uh, approaches by the state, still try and assert some type of uh, uh, authority as national leader. So he's done quite well, too. So in general, um, you've got to say that unless there's a kind of a disaster that's going on, which is, you know, Australia has been extremely lucky for all sorts of reasons to not have had that, then all political leaders are marked reasonably well, despite the many different approaches. And certainly when one compares Australia and New Zealand and the way Canberra and Wellington have handled the pandemic, if you compare them with the US and the UK and much of Europe, Keith, uh, it's chalk and cheese, right? Yeah, um, there's a good reason for that, though, Tom. Um, I mean, Australia very early on banned people from China from coming to Australia and uh, and any uh, Australians themselves who had been in a country with a high rate of infection, they couldn't come back either. So we put on a very strict international quarantine. Um, the, the situations in Europe and Australia are quite different because what's happened in Europe is that when Chinese um, companies have brought up big factories, 
they've brought in Chinese labourers to work at much lower rates than the locals would have. And it's a sort of revival of coolie labour from the 19th century in a way. And the governments of those European countries couldn't stop the Chinese uh, from going back and forth between China because the the economy um, depended so much on it. So Australia and New Zealand were in a better position to be able to do that. And frankly, the national governments did a very good job in responding to that situation very quickly. The only fault you can find in Australia is we should have been better prepared because, look, we have these um, pandemics every, well, once or twice a decade. We had uh, swine flu in 2009. We had SARS uh, bird outbreak in, in 2002. And if you go back, I can remember things. There were um, pandemics of various kinds. And the bureaucracies are the ones that seem to be slack. In New South Wales, we had the Ruby Princess fast, really, where the uh, ship Protocols were not kept by the local health department. And there was also an Anglicare um, home in, out near Penrith where the patients were uh, just dying on a, at a steady, regular rate. Their own staff um, were infected and nobody tested the staff to see what was going on there. So the bureaucracies uh, let us down badly and were unplanned. But, but internationally, we did a good job. And that's not to mention the fact that the size and the scope of the state has increased dramatically in response to the crisis all across the world. Uh, Jacinta Price, uh, does this recession, as some people say, does that represent a repudiation of market capitalism and justify higher levels of government? Not at all. The recession is a result of the government's decisions to shut down the economy to fight the virus. And so it's got nothing to do with the productivity enhancing reforms of the 80s, 90s, 2000s, the, you know, the Hawke, Keating, Howard, Costello reforms that led to three decades of growth and prosperity. So when the critics suggest that this crisis is, is the fault of so-called neoliberal economics, well, they're completely off the mark. The crisis has been caused by the government's decision to shut down the economy to stop COVID. Okay, but do we need more government pump priming of the economy to stabilise the economy and create jobs? Far from it. Look, if anything, what we need is um, is the market economy. We need a new reform agenda of tax cuts and deregulation for you know economic growth. Say, so JobKeeper, this is the government's income support measures that have helped prop up the economy. I mean, when that goes away, what happens then? I reckon that once the pandemic passes, our leaders should do everything to ensure a true return to normal. I mean, the economy needs needs a kickstart with incentives for private sector to grow it, and really nations can't tax themselves back to full employment. Okay, Jenny Hewitt, all that may be true, but the crisis has delivered unprecedented debts and deficits. Does this mean that tax increases and spending cuts, in other words, fiscal austerity, is that unavoidable? Well, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, but I think there'll still be a tendency to give uh, a lot of support to the economy. Uh, they will wind down JobKeeper. I mean, and certainly the government's intention is, is to try and stimulate private sector investment as much as possible. Uh, but with the backing of the Reserve Bank, you know, they will continue to borrow and spend quite heavily in areas like uh, infrastructure, for example, indefinitely. And so I think there will be some fiscal austerity to come, but it's not going to be any time soon. And uh, in terms of tax increases, obviously, you know, this government um, in particular makes a virtue of not having tax increases. But although inflation has slowed dramatically and wages are not going up much, there's still, you know, that inevitable kind of bracket creep that occurs as your, your tax rate stays steady and your income goes up slowly. So we'll just see what happens on that. 
Well, this is Tom Switzer from RN, and my guests are Jenny Hewitt from the Financial Review, Keith Winshuttle from Quadrant Magazine, and Jacinta Price from the Centre for Independent Studies. Now, the killing of George Floyd in May, that drew global attention to the Black Lives Matter movement, and it became an international protest. That was the sound of a New York City police car ramming into Black Lives Matter protesters in New York. Jacinta Price, it's, it's widely believed that the Black Lives Matter movement represents a noble cause. You have a different position. Tell us more. I think the cause is racially divisive. I, I think it uh, completely ignores black-on-black violence, whether the, the movement is here in Australia or in the US. It, it also... It, it holds perpetrators up on pedestals. And when you ignore black-on-black violence, you also uh, ignore the victims. Uh, we all know the name of George Floyd. Everyone should know the names of people like Annalise Eugel, the, the 11-year-old who took her own life in Western Australia because her abuser was to be released on bail during her court case. And it is, in my view, it's a racially divisive movement that sets black people further back behind you know, the progress that we have made globally. That's how I feel about the movement. Okay, but these protests over George Floyd's death, they did accelerate uh, throughout the year and already intense debate over what to do with, say, the statues of historic figures across the Western world. Keith, uh, what's your view? I mean, should we judge the past by the standards of the present as uh, supporters of the Black Lives Matter movement suggest? Well, in some cases, uh, yes, in some cases, no. I think there are universal moral principles that all um, human beings should try and, and hold up, and, and one of them is the, is the abolition of slavery. That's, that's, there's pl- still plenty of slavery around the world, and, um, and movements to abolish that um, should be supported. But look, we, we had, in, in Australia, we had a, a sort of preliminary look at, this, at the statue issue a couple of years ago. There was graffiti put all over the, the statue of Captain Cook in, uh, in Hyde Park in Sydney, and there was a movement to take down the, the Cook statue on on the grounds that he was an imperialist and a genocide merchant and all the other rubbish that people talk about about Captain Cook without knowing the first thing about him. But that was very unpopular. And Malcolm Turnbull was the Prime Minister at the time and there were um, polling released which showed that anything from two-thirds to, to more of the population were totally against desecration of, of Cook's statue and totally against governments doing things like um, putting up uh, alternative statues next to him, giving a, an opposite point of view. It's a very unpopular political movement, and any government that follows it down that track will, will, will find to its cost that the general population don't support them. Okay, but some of our listeners here on Radio National, they often email me and uh, some of them tell me that they view the history of uh, European exploration, the colonisation of the new world, uh, they view that with shame and guilt. And Jenny Hewitt, in university history departments across the Western world, certainly in the last decade or so, there has been a determination to, quote, decolonise the curriculum. Uh, What are your thoughts about all of this? Well, I think it's extremely dangerous. I don't I don't necessarily agree that the idea of not putting up alternate or at least um you know slightly different perspectives uh whether our statue form or or teaching is a bad idea at all, but we we do kind of go very quickly into this idea of 
cancel culture and you're not allowed to have certain views and incredible censorship, which is kind of, I think, a real, really pernicious influence that's affecting um, many universities, but also just a lot of thinking these days. On the other hand, it is going to continue. The only way to respond to that is in a reasoned way is to listen to some of the points when they are reasonable, but to ignore the others rather than everybody just kind of be in their boxes. But I, but I do think it's kind of up to people who have a different point of view, not to just to retreat and say there's absolutely no suggestion that any of these things should be discussed either and alternative viewpoints kind of put about. But unfortunately, in the way that we talk about things in the world these days, um, you know, you kind of have to be one thing or the other. Yeah, Jeffrey Blaney, the distinguished uh, historian, he was on my program uh, this year and he told me that uh, notwithstanding Australia's flaws and faults and failings, past and present, by today's world standards, uh, we can hardly be singled out as racist. Now, to the extent those views hold true with the community, Jacinta, don't they contradict the notion of Black Lives Matter? I don't believe at all that we're, we're a racist uh, nation. I think we've demonstrated uh, our support for Indigenous Australians, for bettering the lives of Indigenous Australians, and I think the 1967 referendum was a huge indicator of this. Uh, I think the fact that we have had Indigenous representation in federal parliament since 1971 and state and territory parliaments since 1974 is also another huge uh, indicator that uh, we want to work together to solve some of our uh, really tough issues and issues that affect our most marginalised uh, Australians, you know, which are Indigenous Australians, I think given the fact that we have at every single event that you attend nowadays, even in primary schools to daycare centres where we're, you know, giving an acknowledgement to country and respecting the land in which we're standing on, it's become a little bit ridiculous and, and a little bit farcical in a way. Uh, and, you know, there are many Indigenous people that I know who, um, who cringe every time there's an acknowledgement to country because they feel uh, it is a little bit uh, overdone these days. But I, I, as a nation in general, we are always striving to do better uh, and, and that's, that's for all of us uh, as Australians, including Indigenous Australia. Okay, but what about the era of uh, the White Australia policy, which uh, lasted from Federation in 1901 right through to the mid to late 60s, Keith Winshuttle, your critics would say that its legacy is still felt across the country, which explains, in their mind, endemic racism across Australia. How would you respond to those critics? <laughs> well, that's been a line pushed by, um, by my generation of 1960s historians. And I wrote a book on the White Australia policy to show that they've got the, the whole story completely wrong, which, of course, they had. And uh, in, in the late 19th century, there was a movement to stop labourers from, from China and from um, the Pacific Islands from coming to Australia because they were accepting wages that were ridiculous as far as the Australian wage earners were concerned. They, they undermined the, um, the going rates. On the sugar cane fields, the um, so Solomon Island labourers were earning £6 a year. But in Sydney at the same time, uh, an unskilled labourer could earn £6 in two weeks. And, and I'm the only historian so far who's actually looked at the whole of the debate in federal parliament at the time. 
two-thirds of the politicians who had spoken uh, in the debates did so because they were afraid that if the current policies co uh, continued, the, the rate of, um, of wages in Australia would go down. And at the time, Australia had working-class men had the highest wages in the world. This was um, an, an economic issue. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer, making sense of Australia's place in the world. Now, let's turn to the deteriorating state of Australia-China relations. Well, look, I think it was uh, a, a pretty big blow, uh, not just to Australians, but to your friends overseas, and particularly in the UK, to see such uh, an aggressive act being taken by uh, a country that we've been uh, trying to build relationships with now for 20, 30 years. And in fact, you've done better than most in doing so. So I think for many of us, this was a, a, a real wake-up call and uh, an opportunity to rethink the relationship that we've had. That was the chair of the UK Foreign Affairs Select Committee, Tom Tugendhat. He's a past guest on this program. That was in an exclusive interview with Nine News uh, shortly after uh, Beijing leaked the list of 14 grievances about Australia to the Nine Network. Now, of course, uh, this comes at a time when China is really racketing up its tariff campaign against our sectors. And of course, you had China's doctored image of, of an Australian soldier killing an Afghan child that was posted on Twitter. It's all marked a very new low in relations between China and Canberra. Jenny Hewitt, how on earth does any Australian government try to rebuild trust with a regime that many people believe wants us to kowtow to it? Well, I think it's extraordinarily difficult for any um, Australian government to do so, and any Australian government would have found China's behaviour um, over recent years very um, hard to handle and to suggest that we can kind of go back to how it was under the Howard era is nonsensical, unfortunately, because China is the one that has changed dramatically uh, and shows every intention of trying to uh, make an example of Australia um, to ensure that that other people understand as well, other countries understand as well, uh, that criticising China will have great costs. However, I do think you can also say that the Australian, this Australian government um, and the Turnbull government as well, some of their language has been clumsy and therefore has invited a retaliation from the Chinese, which means that Australian businesses will bear a lot of those costs, uh, a lot of the brunt of China's determination to, to punish people and work and show an example to. And of course, the other thing is that Australia in that sense is more vulnerable than many other countries and easier to attack. Obviously, our iron ore industry will continue to boom uh, for, for at least several years because China does not have alternatives, but everything else they do and they clearly will. So I think it's a very, very um, tough end of the year um, and a tough year for China-Australian relationships and I do not see any improvement coming. And following on from Jenny, Keith Winchuttle, I mean, uh, a lot of people in the business sector, uh, former diplomats, academics, they say some of the blame does indeed lie with Canberra. And if you look at the foreign interference laws, uh, the decision to reject Huawei from the 5G digital network, they were both under the Turnbull government, but also the call for an international inquiry into the origins of the Wuhan outbreak. Uh, the critics say that the public articulation of these positions, this is Jenny's point more or less, that just pokes the eye of our largest trade partner. Do the critics have a point, Keith Winchuttle? Well, well, look, Tom, I, I think the most important thing on the list that you mentioned there is an international inquiry into the origins of the Wuhan, Wuhan outbreak. 
because that's something that uh, the World Health Organisation ought to be running and that, um, and that Australia ought to be lobbying all the members of the World Health Organisation to get together and do it. Because if you look historically at, at um, pandemics around the world, most of them have come from China and most of them have come from Chinese food processing practices where large numbers of animals are herded together. They have a disease that, that spreads from anim animals into, into the human population. Uh, this, this current um, pandemic seems to have started that way. The SARS uh, um, epidemic was, was the same kind of thing. And all the way back through all the sort of diseases we used to have go through ch childhood, measles, mumps, chickenpox, even back to centuries, to smallpox, which um, has the same origin in Chinese food processing habits. And it's a matter of the world saying to China, stop this. Um, you've got to close down these wet markets. They might be culturally deep, but they're, they're a menace to the rest of the world, not only to the Chinese people. And um, I think if we took a, a, a very strong stand on, on that issue, it's a, a morally sound issue. Uh, it's not doesn't threaten um, commercial uh, organizations. Hasn't, it, hasn't it just upset the sensibilities of the uh, the Communist Party in China? It would, but if we're not alone, if the rest of the world agrees with us, and this is an issue on which it's easy. I mean, uh, the epidemiologists can can prove. Well, they write, they write books about this sort of stuff. Have been doing it for the last fifty years. Um, the, the the arguments are clear, and it's a matter of um, Australia not not going out alone, but getting strong support. And on this one, I think it's a it's a no brainer. This is Tom Switzer on Radio National, and we're addressing the year in review. Our guests are the Financial Review's Jenny Hewitt, Quadrant Magazine's Keith Winshuttle, and Jacinta Price. She's an Indigenous scholar and Alice Springs Deputy Mayor. Okay, everybody, let's get to the business end of this segment. The winner of 2020, uh, Jacinta Price. Well, I think the winner of 2020 would have to be, for me, would have to be Scott Morrison and I guess his handling of what's been a very, very difficult um, year and I think it, it appears that the polls are proving that he's, um, he's, a, he's a popular Prime Minister at the moment and uh, that's who I'm running with. Jenny Hewitt, winner of the year. Well, um, I was going to say Scott Morrison as well for for the same um, very much the same reasons, but uh, in the interests of of diversity, um, I will then uh, I'll nominate Joe Biden uh, as a, as an obvious winner who, mm. um, in many ways, won uh, against the odds and uh, and might not have won had it not been for the um, coronavirus but was able to, despite everything, many things against him, and despite the fact that, you know, a lot of people were voting against Trump rather than for him, I think has struck uh, the right tone so far in a, in a deeply divided country, but is going to be tested so much more in, uh, in 2021. Yes, and, and a lot of scholars are thinking that because... Um Trump didn't handle alliances very well. Uh, an incoming Biden administration will have a much uh, uh, better impact on the uh, the broader geopolitics, certainly of uh, the Asia Pacific. Uh, Keith Winchell, your winner of 2020. Well, my winner, uh, Tom, is the High Court of Australia for the uh, decision in the Pell appeal case, the decision to acquit um, an, an innocent man of a 
of uh, a trumped-up charge, um, which which had been preceded by a very long witch hunt by by police, um, other judicial figures, especially compensation lawyers, and by and of course none, not the least the Australian media, who all assumed that Pell was guilty, um, and and the High Court, in fact, not only not only um, signalled the end of this witch hunt against this individual, but legally, politically, and morally, Australia had um, had walked to to a sort of an abyss of. Um, of um, that, that threatened the rule of law, and, and we looked down into it. And um, thankfully, at the last minute, the High Court uh, turned around. We were going to ha- have a situation where anybody who made a claim of um, sexual assault was was believed as a as a matter of course, and um, and that that really means that there was no need to have a trial because whatever the complainant said was going to be accepted. Uh, and the idea of testing evidence. Of, of the court, jury or judges deciding whether somebody's innocent or, or guilty in sexual abuse cases was going to be was going to be um, uh, overturned and um, and fortunately the high court retained some sense um, justice michael McHugh in a, in a, in a decision in the 1990s talked about the hysterias that sometimes um, overcome the, the, the population and the, and, the, and the judges should be above all that. And, and he's right. And, and in the Pell case, um, there, there was a, a, a serious bout of hysteria for, for a long period of time, which um, just completely abolished uh, any thought of, of um, legal principles such as the presumption of innocence or that uh, the prosecution has to prove somebody guilty rather than the accused has to prove their innocence. These things uh, have, have been handed down to, for centuries uh, under the rule of law and the Pell case showed that that could be um, o- overlooked and overthrown uh, in a minute if, um, if, if a whole lot of people have the, ha- have the same view. Okay, so the winners of the year, Scott Morrison for Jacinta Price, Joe Biden for Jenny Hewitt and the High Court for Keith Winchuttle. That brings us to predictions for 2021. Jacinta Price. Well, I'm I'm hoping that um, the the world will wake up to itself and there'll be a pushback against this ridiculousness of um, political correctness and we'll start to view one another more like human beings instead of uh, being categorised and placed in boxes and told what you can and cannot say, I think we'll start to see a bit more of a pushback uh, Mm. on this kind of behaviour. Jenny Hewitt. Well, I'm um, predicting that the vaccine will work and it will uh, later perhaps in the year, That so 2021 will be um, a better year and the economy will, a global economy will improve again. But I think we're still going to see a whole lot of, you know, asset price inflation because of low in- interest rates uh, and that's going to kind of increase the cries about uh, inequality and uh, not much will, will change from that point of view. Keith Winshuttle, your prediction for 2021. Well, um, I'm going to disagree with my two um, two uh, collaborators here. I um, I'm pessimistic. <laughs> I'm, I think that um, things in 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 uh, the ideology of identity politics can only get worse. And the reason for that is that there's too many major institutions that are committed to that form of thinking. And um, the, the worst, of course, are the universities, which um, you don't get a job teaching at a university unless you 
subscribe to all these all these things and, and in fact the more extreme your views are the more chance you, you have of getting a position but other institutions like, um, like especially in the media the, the former Fairfax Press the ABC is in the vanguard of identity politics the, uh, the until we have institutional change it's it's not just a matter of um, public opinion and people getting tired of it it's a matter of real institutional change and I don't see any of that happening uh, in in the coming year. And you're bearish about the economy too, I take it? Um, uh, well, I think the economy will... Uh, no, I think the economy will bounce back reasonably well. OK. Um, uh, I think the, sign, the signs are there already. And look at the house prices in Sydney. You know, they're in the stratosphere again already. Um, and, and the restaurants are all open and, and, you know, it's hard to get a seat. I, I tried to book a seat for a restaurant <laughs> on Christmas Day. No, you, you can't get one. <laughs> it's, it's, it, yeah. I've left it too late. And, um, well, that um, is a sign of recovery. We, we have to wrap up the year now. A lively end to the year. Jenny Hewitt, thanks so much. It was a pleasure, Tom. Jacinta Price, great to have you on the program again. Thanks, Tom, and Merry Christmas. And Merry Christmas to you all and to Keith Winchuttle. Thanks, Tom. I'm, I'm glad to be here and good to talk to you again. Well, that's it for the show this week. And to hear our year in review panel again... Remember, just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompt to Between the Lines. And, of course, you can always download the podcast on the ABC Listen app. This is Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in again next week.